0: study of the minor prophets, and at this point we've made it to halfway through the book of Joel. I want to remind you, if you'll also, as you open your Bibles, if you'll also take out your bulletin that you received when you came in, there are some notes there that will be very helpful for you as we walk through. But I want to remind you of the points that we studied last week. The the topic of our sermon last week, or the title was, What Does Joel teach us about God? And what we said was that God, through Joel, we see that God will interrupt our lives. And the point of God interrupting our lives, sending unusual circumstances into our lives, is to turn us to him, to remind us of the need to repent and to depend on him. God also expects our emotions to reflect our relationship to Him. And what we mean by this is that when our relationship with God is broken because of our sin, He doesn't expect rejoicing, He expects weeping. And then when our relationship with Him is restored and we're walking with Him, He expects us to be rejoicing. And so our emotions should reflect that relationship to Him. And then we also saw that God uses the earth as a reminder to us to always be repenting and returning to him. We see this as the earth displays uh, unusual circumstances also. Through hurricanes, through natural n- disasters. And then also things, man-made disasters like 9-11. And then lastly we saw that God's desire in all of this is that he would redeem us. His desire is to redeem us. And he shows us this by leading us in the way of repentance and turning towards him and that also historically he has always redeemed his people when they've turned to him and so at this point this morning we come to Joel chapter 2 verses 28 through chapter 3 verse 21 and what we want to study this morning is why do we hope and the subtitle there you'll see is eschatological hope in Joel and can anyone remind me of eschatological means? Anybody? End times. That's right. It means end times. And there are these prophecies throughout the minor prophets about what's going to happen to God's people. And this applies not only to the Israelites, but to us, to us. And we're going to see this this morning. But again, we're studying why do we hope? Why do we hope? And despite the emphatic nature of the song that we have just sung about hoping in God as we die, hoping in His salvation. Hope tends to be a very subjective thing in our culture. That was a very objective song about why we hope as believers, but if you go even to many Christian funerals, I would say to you that Christian hope tends to be very subjective. Sometimes when you go to even a Christian funeral, the talk is more about the person than about God and about Christ. But beyond... Christian culture. We have all types of people who are searching for hope and who are seeking it and finding it in some sense. Whether they find it in this life or whether they say everything's going to turn out in the end and this God is going to bring all people to himself. Hope is a very interesting concept because whether believer or unbeliever, all people are looking for it. All people are looking for it. But I want to suggest to you that The Christian hope was not at all subjective to the early Christians. It was not at all subjective. It was very objective. And so I want to read to you something that was written by a guy named Aristides in the early 2nd century. You see, early Christian hope, the hope that the believers had, was even an apologetic. It was a defense of the faith. Because as people looked at the believers and saw this huge hope in their lives, it was a, a defense of saying, God is real, there's something weird about these people. There is something crazy different about these people. It's evident in how they live. It's evident in how they hope in all circumstances. I want to read to you something written by him in the early 2nd century. His name is Aristides. It goes like this. Every morning and every hour he's speaking of believers. They give thanks and praise to God for his loving kindnesses towards them. And for their food and their drink, they offered thanksgiving to him. And if any righteous man among them passes from the world, they rejoice and offer thanks to God. And they escort his body as if he were setting out from one place to another near. And when a child has been born to one of them, they give thanks to God. And if, moreover, it happened to die in childhood, they give thanks to God the more. As for one who has passed through the world without sins, And further, if they see that any one of them dies in his ungodliness or in his sins, for him they grieve bitterly and sorrow as for one who goes to meet his doom. You see, all depended on hope in Christ. All depended on hope in God and God's promises and one's relationship to those promises. All of life revolved around this. And so I want to suggest to you this morning that if the Christian hope is true, if the Christian hope is true, it should make all other hopes look like a sham. If the Christian hope is true, as you live out that hope in your daily life, others' hopes should look fake. It should look like a sham. And I wonder if this is true of you. I wonder if people see this in you. That your hope, everything that you stand in, is in Christ, and Christ alone. What you hope in is not money, even on a daily basis. It's not money, it's not material things at all, it's not even family. But it is Christ, and all that He has promised you. It is a God who fulfills all His promises for you. I wonder if this is your hope. As we get into the main points of the sermon, we have two main points. Two main points. And the first is that God fulfills His promises. And the second is that God judges all His enemies. And I know that that one may not seem very hopeful, but we we will get to that. And this is very important. Very important. First, God fulfills all His promises. And I want to read to you, and this might sound a bit similar to what Dr. David read this morning, but we're going to read Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32 as we begin. So I would invite you to stand with me as we read these verses. you recall that at the end, at where we l- ended last week, that God has restored the land to Israel. He has provided for them a rich land. And Joel begins this way in chapter, verse 28 of chapter 2. He says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. You may be seated. Lord, we thank you for this text, and we thank you that you have taught us more about what this text means in the New Testament. Father, thank you for the dependence of your word. Lord, that it is reliable, trustworthy, and that you show it to us in so many ways. Lord, thank you for the hope that we can have in you and your salvation. And we pray that your spirit would be with us this morning. As even Joel talks about, that you would send us your spirit, that we may understand your word, and that we may proclaim your truth more clearly. Thank you, Christ Jesus. Amen. And the first point what we see is that God fulfills his promises. Now, if you'll look to your notes, what we're going to do as we walk through this portion in Joel is we're going to hit the points very quickly so that we can move to Acts, and in Acts, we're going to show more about what these things mean. In the New Testament, we receive even more understanding of this. The first point... God fulfills His promises. The way He fulfills His promises is He sends His Spirit. He sends His Spirit. And the main thing about God sending His Spirit is that it is available to all. If you've studied much about the Old Testament and this culture, what you know is that it was a very male-dominated culture, and not just male-dominated, but it was also dominated by older males. To the extent that some of these older males would rise in their first prayer in the morning would say, thank you God that you have not made me a woman or a child. And so when God says, I'm going to send out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and all these. What The big, just huge thing here is that God's spirit is going to be available to all. And so what you see is God is going to send His Spirit and it is going to be available to all, elder, young, male, female, master, slave. And in the New Testament, this is so clearly conveyed. We see this in Genesis 3.28. And this is where Paul gets his theology. Paul just doesn't pull this out of thin air. He pulls it straight from the Old Testament. And it says in Galatians 3.28, this is in your notes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Notice that Paul is connecting Christ Jesus to the promises made in Joel. You see, these are very, very connected. That as Christ Jesus comes, these promises of God are fulfilled. And so the first promise is he's going to send his spirit. And there will be no hierarchy that all people, whether children, mothers, fathers, whoever, has access to the spirit. But what's the significance of having God's Spirit? What does this mean? The significance is that through God's Spirit, God is sending His Word. Through God's Spirit, He is sending His Word. You see that there are three ways in this passage that God will send His Word. And look at the passage in verse 28. You see, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. So we have prophecy, prophecy meaning a declaration of God's truth. Sometimes we think that when God gives us the gift of prophecy, that means we're going to be able to predict these future events. That's not what's happening here. When we receive the gift of prophecy, it means that we can receive God's truth and we can proclaim it. It's a very simple thing. We study God's word and we're able to apply God's word to these situations and we're able to speak God's truth. This is prophecy Prophecy is the ability to receive God's truth and proclaim it. Also, we receive God's truth through dreams and through visions. Now, this may seem very odd to us and may not make a lot of sense, but this happens in the Old Testament. And even as we get into early Christianity, it's clear that God's people are receiving His truth in a variety of ways. A variety of ways. We can say that when they dream dreams and they see visions... It never contradicts God's word. And so it's not as if we can receive this new prophecy and new truth, but we can learn things and grow in God through these things. And so God sends us his spirit and he sends us his word. The way we receive God's word is through his spirit. And these things are accessible to all. And then see, this is very important. He sends salvation. He sends us salvation. This is God's way of fulfilling his promises. But... It's only to those who call, and notice in your notes, are called. Now, this is some people are getting shaky in their, sheet, their seats here, but look at verse 32. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survival survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. These are parallel thoughts. That those who call on the Lord shall be saved, but these are also the ones who the Lord is calling. We're going to get into this more in in Acts, but notice the tension here. And this is a paradox throughout Scripture, that those who call on the Lord were responsible to call on Him, but God is the one drawing. It is only by God's drawing that we do call on the Lord. In this, we're going to see that salvation and judgment coincide that as god is offering his salvation judgment is also coming this is what's happening in verse 32 when it says that in mount zion and in jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the lord has said there's a battle going on as god offers his salvation this is a battle going on and he's offering his salvation because there's a possibility that you may be lost that you may be judged so everyone must respond in some way. Now, let's, I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2. And this is where these promises become even more clear. And this is where Dr. David read for us this morning. And the question we want to ask as we approach Acts chapter 2 is how are God's promises from Joel fulfilled in these verses and the larger New Testament corpus? we're going to take these one by one. We're not going to go through all of it at one time. Begin with verse 17. Peter has said, "This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel." Know that this is the Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Jesus has ascended to heaven, and in ascending, he's also sent his spirit to his disciples. And so Peter begins to preach under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and in verse 17, the The first words uttered are huge. And in the last days, this is what is uttered by the prophet Joel. In the last days, it shall be God declares. You notice anything different? Look at your notes. In the New Testament, God has opened a new age. Through the presence of God's Spirit, by the death, resurrection of Jesus, God has brought in a new age. Notice, look at Joel 2.28 in your notes. It says, Joel, when he wrote this, said, It shall come to pass afterward. It shall come to pass afterward. But when Peter speaks this, Peter's words are, In the last days it shall be. This may seem nitpicky to you. This is vast. This is huge. Very important. There's a lot of confusion caused in our culture by this remark about in the last days. Every decade, you get a new preacher who comes in and says, This happened and this happened. The Pope is doing this. These must be the last days that we're coming into. I remember a, a, a few years ago. Preachers got on a kick of they heard about the European Union and they said that the European Union was clearly laid out in the book of Revelation. And the anti, it was the Antichrist. It was the revelation of the Antichrist. And now we're in the last days because the European Union was formed. But. What Peter says. Is that the last day started as soon as the spirit was sent. And the spirit being sent is connected with Jesus' life, death and resurrection. You see, what's important here is that no other person can bring in the last days. Only Jesus brings in the last days. And so, when you, you don't need to think about what the Pope is doing. The last days are not significant because some other person. The last days are significant because Jesus has sent His Spirit and He has called His people to mission. Called His people to mission. And so the, what the last days are to be characterized by... Is the fullness of his spirit and the proclamation of his word. What you see throughout the book of Acts, how the disciples live in response to these last days is they proclaim his word and they do his mission, which is ministering to people. They feed the poor. They help those in need. This is how we live in the last days. There are many people I've worked with, and especially in in evangelism that you encounter, who are always eager to find out what's going on in the book of Revelation. But when you want to talk to them about trying to live out the gospel, they cut off. They don't want to talk about that. They only want to talk about the, the last days. But I want to suggest to you that the last days are here. The last days are here because Jesus came. And you may say, well, it's been a long time. These last days are going on for a long time. But we're also reminded in the scripture that God is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. But he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. A day is as a thousand years to the Lord and one thousand years as to a day. And so the important points here or that God has called us to live in these days in the fullness of His Spirit, proclaiming His Word and in mission, living out His mission. And so, in the fulfillment of of this prophecy from Joel, in God's sending of His Spirit, in the life and resurrection of Jesus, God has brought in a new age, and we are to live in this new age. So... The next thing that God has done in this, God has sent His Spirit to His people. God has sent His Spirit and His truth. And the question here is, do you expect the work of the Spirit in your life? Do you expect the work of the Spirit in your life? This is why Paul was able to say... Uh, many of his introductions to his book because the people that he preached to had received the Spirit he would say we pray that you may be filled with knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord you see if you have received God's Spirit there should be growth there should be sanctification in your life we often talk about the priesthood of the believer but what's happened through the Spirit is we also, as Joel said, we receive the gift of prophecy, we're able to receive truth and speak truth. And so the prophethood of the believer is practical as well. Are you people, individuals who receive God's truth and speak God's truth to others, this should characterize your life, sanctification through the presence of God's Spirit as you look to His Word and as you seek Him daily. Does this characterize you? Do you expect this growth in the Spirit? Are you making disciples? This is what happens when you speak God's truth. That you have people in your life that are following you as you mentor them and as you teach them. And I just want to ask this question, and some of you will be bothered by it. But please understand what I'm saying. Are you open to unusual experiences of God's presence? Are you open to unusual experiences of God's presence? What Joel said is that his people will dream dreams and his people will see visions. He's not saying this is the normal thing, that you should always expect dreams and that you should always expect visions. But there are times, people, when God will speak to you in unusual ways. We should maintain that the primary way God speaks to us is through his word. We maintain that. We stand on that. But... Through the presence of God's spirit. He will speak to us in unusual ways sometimes. Now that should never contradict his word. Never should it contradict his word. But. Are you open to God speaking to you in an unusual way? Or do you just say that doesn't happen? There's no way. God doesn't do that. The spirit might do unusual things sometimes. And so are you open to these things? Now. Now. God has also sent salvation. Acts clearly tells us this. In Joel 2.32, and you see this in your notes, in Acts 2.21, and in Romans 10.13, we have the same scripture, the same exact words. And these words are, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, this is an incredible verse, and it is very true that all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, who call on him in truth. But the problem is that oftentimes we have taken this verse and used it and not used the other verse that was mentioned in Joel, which is also in Joel 2.32 and is used in Acts 2.39. Look to Acts 2.39 with me for a moment. You might have thought Peter didn't use this one, but he did. Acts 2.39. For the promise, Peter says, is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. You see, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved and everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. This is the huge paradox in Scripture. Again, it's all throughout That God is calling on people to make the decision to turn to him. But at the same time, they can only come by the drawing of his spirit. Jesus affirms this as well in John chapter 6, verse 44. You can write that verse down. I didn't include it in your notes. And he says, no one can come to the Lord unless the Lord draws them. Please listen to this. If you take one of these verses, just the one that says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, and you don't use the other one, it's like building your house with a crack in the foundation before you even start putting all the house together. You're getting on the wrong theological path. And this is incredibly important when we come to evangelism and to our personal lives. We've used Romans 10 13 oftentimes in evangelism that says, it's, that says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But we haven't explained what that means. It's not simply that you pray a prayer and that's calling on the Lord. Calling on the Lord is to identify with the Lord consistently in your life. And so if you've just prayed a prayer and you thought that that's what salvation is, that one time calling upon the Lord to save you, that's not it. Is your life constantly characterized by devotion to God? By love for Him? Faithfulness to Him? This is what he means when he says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. It's a continual calling upon the Lord. Devotion to Him. And so for you personally, Are you consistently identifying with God? Can people look at you and say, this person knows God, walks with God, is devoted to God? And then, another practical application for evangelism. Are you responsible for giving anyone a false assurance about their salvation? You see, we often talk about the eternal security of the believer. Once saved, always saved. We've all heard it. And I'm not saying it's not true. But if you comfort someone else who isn't walking with the Lord. The scriptures don't affirm this. The scriptures do not affirm this. So do you do you tell someone all they have to do is pray a prayer that is not real evangelism. That is not real walking with Christ relationship with Christ. Don't give people a false assurance. You might be held accountable it's interesting to me when we look to the New Testament. You know, we talk about the eternal security, once saved, always saved. But I want to read to you a passage from 2 Peter 1.10. Peter's advice on the issue is this. Brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and your election sure. Peter wasn't telling them, just be comforted. Did you call on the Lord at some point? Yeah, you're good, you're safe. No. He was saying, you better walk carefully, you better walk faithfully, and you better examine your life often to make sure, are you in the Lord? Do you know Him? Now, this isn't to make anyone doubt their salvation. That's not the point. But we should be evaluating our lives and asking, does my life bear fruit of the gospel? Is my conscience convicted by sin? If it's not, then you need to ask a serious question if you really know the Lord. If you really have a relationship with him. This is what happens to believers. Now, as we move into chapter 3, Joel chapter 3, we must shift gears a little bit it's going to it is very connected but we realize as we get into chapter three that joel is speaking to a particular situation in the life of israel if you remember last week israel is on the verge of war and as we look at the text we need to understand the questions that israel would be asking they would ask what was the ultimate fate of their city of god's city Will God's presence be abandoned from our city? God has always been identified with the people and the place of Israel. What will happen to our city? What will happen to our worship? Would their enemy prevail? These enemies that are coming in, would their enemy prevail and God just allow the enemy to get away with it? What's going to happen? These are the kinds of questions they're asking. Now, these may seem irrelevant on the surface, but they resemble our our own questions in a lot of ways. Questions that we will ask. What will God do with the evil in our world? Will God just let it go? Let it prevail? Is cancer going to win the day? What about the economy? Is it going to take over and it'll win out? What's going to happen? Will violent, hateful people get away with their actions? These are questions that we ask. And even times in the quiet when we're alone, we might ask, is God real? Is he really going to make all this right? Is he really going to reveal himself out here someday very clearly? In chapter three of Joel, we get the answers to these questions. And the point here is God judges all his enemies. Now, we need to make some preliminary remarks as we get into this. First, God must judge His enemies for His people to dwell in peace. Some of us are just bothered by the idea that God is judgmental, that He will conquer evil in some way. But we must understand that in order for us, for God's people to dwell in peace, the enemy, evil, must be defeated and must be dealt with. It must be dealt with. And so just as a preliminary comment, God must judge evil. And these include people, real people. Secondly, many will be judged. In our culture today, there's this movement where people try to say that somehow God's going to bring it around in the end and all people will know God and God will invite all people into his presence. But what Joel wants to teach us clearly in chapter 3 is that there will be many who will be judged. Look at chapter 3 verse 14. This valley of decision, know this, the valley of decision Joel speaks of is called the valley of judgment. Valley of Jehoshaphat. The name means God will judge. And so, Joel says in verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. In the valley of decision. The day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Joel is clearly saying there are many people that are here And here in verse 12, it says, God says at the end of verse 12, there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. So we see that there will be many who are there and that God will judge many. And Jesus affirms this. I find it amazing sometimes these people, even Christians I know, who will try to say that God is going to bring it around to the end and he's going to be nice to everyone. This is never affirmed in the Bible. Matthew chapter 7, 13 through 14. And this is in your notes. Enter by the narrow gate, Jesus says, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Are few. So with these... These scriptures. We should reject teachings of inclusivism. We should reject teachings of universalism. And this shouldn't be because we desire everyone to fry. This shouldn't be because we're hateful people. But we want to seek the truth. We want to walk by the scriptures. Now, we need to hold in this that God is not some ogre who's waiting to judge everyone and just be hateful to everyone. But He's also not a passive parent who's easily appeased by a cute face God desires faithfulness repentance so one more preliminary point here judgment is not a time for decision making there is no more time for repentance what's happening here in this valley of judgment it says valley of decision valley of decision but God's the one making the decision when the people come to the Valley of Judgment, they have no more opportunity. It is God who makes the decision and God who gives the judgment. And so there's a very practical application here. When we were in Washington, D.C. with the youth, we were at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and the guy who was preaching used an illustration that I thought was, it was very helpful. He said that, Try, some of us will try to continue in sin, and we think that one day we're going to repent. One day we'll, we'll repent and we'll get rid of all of it. And he said, This is like me having a blindfold on and holding a lit stick of dynamite and just waiting and saying, I'll throw it away. I'm going to throw it away. I'm going to throw it away. It could blow up at any time, and you have no way of knowing. So, the practical application here if you think that one day you're just going to repent, that you're going to get rid of your sin, Judgment will come, and you will have no more time to make a decision. No more time. When judgment comes, it's not a time for your decision. God will make the decision, and evil will be judged. So, the main things we want to say about this, after saying these preliminary remarks, God must judge His enemies for us people to dwell in peace. Many will be judged, and this is not a time for us to make a decision God defends His people. This is why God is coming to judge. Because one of these reasons is because God defends His people. Before we move into the Scriptures in Joel, I want to make clear that this includes us. Many, in chapter 3, it speaks of God defending the city of Zion and defending the people of Israel. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, this verse is in your notes. It says, you being believers, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. The reason God is identified with Israel is because his people are Israel. And so God's not just concerned about a place, he's concerned about his people. And so now, as you worship the Lord, he's concerned about you, and his dwelling place is among us. And so as you look at this, Joel is speaking to a people in their cultural context in a way that they will understand. But no, God is speaking to you. You. We are his dwelling place. So Joel chapter 2 verses uh, chapter 3 verses 2 through 3. God says, I will enter into judgment on behalf of my people and my heritage. You see, God has been working this plan of redemption all along. And he was working this plan for Israel. And these people come in. He speaks of nations such as the Philistines. And they have come in and they've tortured the people of Israel, even bringing them out of their land. And so God says to these who have attempted to destroy Israel, I will destroy you because you've interven- you have come into my plan of redemption. You have tried to destroy my plan. And so the reason that God, He is defending His people against all people who have tried to mess up His plan. And so His plan to redeem a people and for all those who try to get in the way of that he will judge he will judge all who work against god's plan he will judge joel chapter 3 verse 16 the lord roars from zion and utters his voice from jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake but the lord is a refuge to his people a stronghold to the people of israel This language that we see when the Lord is roaring from Zion, He's uttering His voice from Jerusalem, the heavens and the earth quake. This is judgment language. God is judging the earth. But what He's saying is while everyone else is trembling because judgment is coming, even the heavens and the earth are shaking, He says, I will be a refuge for My people. I will guard you from this destruction. And I will protect you. You see, the Lord is defending His people. Do you trust him as your defender? Or are you always trying to defend yourself? This has enormous practical application for even everyday life. Do you constantly find yourself trying to stand up for yourself and defend yourself against accusations? Or do you trust the Lord as your defender? Have you put your whole hope and your trust in Him as the one who will defend you every day of your life and particularly on the last day? He will protect you. He will guard you. The Lord's people will be protected by His presence, even in judgment of everyone around us. I would like to also say this. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says that judgment is on God, uh, people even now. As God gives people over to their sinful desires. God is giving them over to judgment. But what God says here is that God will protect His people even in the midst of judging others. And so I wonder, are you turning away from sin even in your daily life and allowing God to protect you from the effects of sin that are all around you? Are you falling into a culture of sin? Are you allowing God's presence to protect you on, on a daily basis from the effects of sin all around you? And the way that you do this is by constantly finding your refuge in Him, by constantly falling on your face, loving Him, honoring Him, seeking Him in every way. Are you being protected? Do you sense His protection even now? This is His promise to protect us. Next, Joel chapter 3, verses 17 through 18. Verse 20, in your notes again, it says, And Jerusalem shall be holy. Strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah will, shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley, Shittim. Judah shall be inhabited forever, and in Jerusalem to all generations. We see this same thing in Revelation. This is where we see these promises that Joel is predicting. This is where we see them fulfilled. Again, Joel has just said, there shall be no strangers in Jerusalem. When is this fulfilled? When is this fulfilled? Look to Revelation chapter 21, verse 27. This is in your notes so that you don't have to turn. God says about this heavenly Jerusalem, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. God's people will be brought into a land and they will never be persecuted, never be made fun of, never be bothered by evil again. Never be tempted by it again. The promise is made in Joel and it is fulfilled in the new Jerusalem. Is this your hope? Is this what you long for? The Lord will defend you, He does this for you, that He might bring you into His eternal dwelling and protect you from evil forever." Also, Revelation 22:1, the river of the water of life." This was in Joel chapter three, verses 17 through 18, and it is here in Revelation 22, and it says, "God's people will reign forever. This is where these promises are fulfilled. Now, God also, the purpose of His judgment of His enemies is to defend His name. To defend His name. Chapter 3, verse 13 of Joel. He says, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Their evil is great. The language here is found in Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. If you'll turn there with me, and we'll be done shortly. The way that we see that God is defending his name is we see that the reason he's judging is because the evil of the people was great. The evil that they have done is against God, and so God is judging the evil that is against him. In Revelation chapter 14, beginning in verse 14 Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, and for its grapes are ripe. Notice that both the images that Joel has used are used here. The harvest and the grapes, the wine press, the same ones And so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the great harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Joel is pointing to a day when all evil will be judged. All evil will be taken because it is evil against the name of the Lord who is pure, holy, and righteous. Righteous. Then Joel 3.21 321 God says I will avenge their blood blood I have not avenged for the Lord dwells in Zion God will defend himself he will defend his name against all evil It's very interesting that in the midst of all this hope that God is offering for his people, the last verse of the book of Joel is judgment. Is judgment. And so, for those of you who are like, why are we talking so much about all this judgment? It is very, very important because the question is, where will you be? Will you be judged? Or will you be one of these who we talked about from the book of Acts, who God sends his spirit to and God has sent his salvation to? Will you be saved? We need to be cultivating a fear of the Lord within us and so that we will not be the ones who will be judged in these cases. I want to challenge you again with what Peter says. Make your calling and election sure. You don't want to risk it. You don't want to risk it. I want to close here with chapter 3, verse 20. It says, Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. God is speaking of the day that we've talked about in Revelation. The heavenly Jerusalem that comes down and His people dwell there with Him forever and ever. And as we said earlier, the passage says, his God's, God's people reign forever. Reign. There was a book written recently called Why, God Won't, Why Won't God Go Away or Why God Won't Go Away. It was talking about a lot of people who are offering arguments against God's existence and all of these things, and so he's defending that and saying why God won't go away. And I suggest to you that the reason God won't go away is because He's real and His hope is real and He is preserving His people and He will never go away. His city will be inhabited forever. Is this your hope? Is this your main hope? The main points this morning God fulfills all His promises. All His promises. This is connected with Christ Jesus. That He came, He lived, He died, and He rose from the dead. And in that, He has sent His Spirit. And the last days are here. We are living in them. We are called to mission and proclamation of the Gospel. And as we do that, God's judgment is coming and he will judge all his enemies all his enemies in defense of his people and defense of his own name is this the hope in which you stand i hope believers that for you hope is not a subjective thing it is very objective So that when your funeral comes, it won't be a proclamation of you and how well you lived life and about you. But it will be a proclamation of the gospel, of resurrection, of hope. That is hope. Hope is not subjective. It is objective. This is our only hope now and forever. And so as we close, I'll ask Stephanie to come forward. This needs to be a time of repentance. Repentance. If this isn't your only hope, you need to turn. You need to turn. God's judgment is coming and it will come on you. Are you sure? Are you sure? So, for believers, this needs to be an evident hope in your life as you share life With people every day. That even as you take your food. That even as you eat with your family. You proclaim hope through prayer. Through thanksgiving. (coughs) That even as you go to bed at night. Are you studying with your family? Are you teaching them about the gospel? Is it evident that it's always your hope? Dads you should be leading in this. You should be cultivating this in your home. College students, is this your priority? The church and the gospel. This is what God has called us to give our lives to. Again, don't wait. Judgment is coming, and it could come any day. So, I want to provide this time. If you'd like to pray, we'll be here. Mr. Al's available, and Dr. David is available. And would love to speak with you if you'd like, but I want to invite you, if you want to come up here and pray and repent, or if you want to kneel at your seat, make this your hope. Trust that it is the only hope and that there is nothing else. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great salvation. We thank you for your spirit to accompany us, to lead us in this life. That you have given us your truth through your spirit. That you've given us your word to understand, to speak, to proclaim to others. Lord, may we trust that this is the only hope. God, may it abide in us and may it overflow from us. Lord, thank you that thousands of years ago, you spoke this through the prophet Joel. And then hundreds of years after that, you fulfilled it through Jesus. Thank you for sending us your son. Thank you for keeping your promises, God, and that you will return to us. We praise you, Lord. We pray that you would lead us. God, that you would draw more to yourself. Lord, that we would always proclaim your gospel faithfully. Pray this in the name of Jesus, your son.